The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times. It's August, a month where most of us will be hoping to get some time off work. And to celebrate the month of too much time on our hands, we'll be releasing podcasts on the theme of idle times. Isn't it funny that a day at the office seems to drag by so slowly, and yet a day in the park, or maybe at the pub, is over in a flash? Is time and the way it passes something that actually exists in the physical world? we perceive to exist, but doesn't actually exist in the physical world. In this debate, back from the end of time, we've brought you a world-leading physicist, Eric Villinder, and two world-leading philosophers, Hugh Price and Alice Fernandez, to debate the nature of time. James Ladyman hosts. Morning, everyone. We are back from the end of time in this packed tent in Hay on Wye, and I'm very pleased to have this panel for you to discuss the issue of whether time's passage is illusory, whether time itself is real, fundamental, or what. So, uh, without further ado, let me introduce you to Eric Valinde, who's a physicist from Utrecht. He's winner of the Spinoza Prize, works on string theory, and now on his own theory of gravitation and time. Alison Fernandez is from the University of Warwick at the moment. She's a research fellow. She works in the area of uh, relationship between uh, metaphysics and psychology of time, and she'll soon be at Trinity College, uh, Ireland. And Hugh Price is the Bertrand Russell Professor of Philosophy at the University of Cambridge, a fellow of Trinity College, founder of uh, one of the founders of the Centre for Existential Risk, and uh, considers things like the future of intelligence. So, uh, we have a great panel, and uh, our theme is time, its reality, the passage of time, and I think we'll start with Eric. So let me first explain what time means in physics, and then I'll go indeed further into my recent ideas about why time might emerge from. So in physics, we think about time as evolving forward. We even use it that way. We use the past to determine the state of the present, and then uh, we have a logical way in which events occur. Uh, we call this causality in the sense that we have cause and effect where the cause precedes the effect, and you cannot change this around. There's also a very intimate connection between time and space. This is in, in relativity, where we can even transform uh, time and space into each other. So there's no absolute meaning of time. When you start moving around, clocks work differently depending on your velocity. 
so what determines the direction of time? There are some ideas that related to entropy, because entropy is a notion that we say has to increase uh, towards the future, and then maybe we should say that the direction of time is determined by entropy. I think that's a, a misconception, because I think microscopically uh, the laws are time-symmetric, and you can derive this law of the second law of thermodynamics, which implies the, the in increase of uh, entropy from these microscopic laws, which are uh, reversible. So time basically can go backwards and forwards if you look at the microscopic equation. So there must be another reason why it appears to go forward. Uh, then there's the idea that maybe that if I really know what's the state today, can I calculate what's going on tomorrow? Is there determinism? Can I really determine what is the next state? In, in, in physics, many people believe this, that once we know the microscopic laws, then we can compute everything. I don't think that's possible. Uh, that's sort of a, a local way of determinism that is uh, going too far. I think nature is fundamentally non-local. That means that we have to really know the entire state to know what the future is. And it's also quantum mechanical. And this is where I think my ideas are sort of coming from is that the way we are thinking about the universe should be in terms of quantum mechanics, and then even we can understand the nature of space and time in a different way. We've looked at uh, what happens uh, near horizon. So horizon is a space, a part of space, where clocks can even slow down so that there appear to be sort of no time left. So this is where we can understand better where time comes from. And then the following picture appears. So uh, in quantum mechanics, we... Uh, can start from a state where there's no time. You simply know the state of the system, but then the way that time appears is if you are asking questions about only the things that we can see, what like the visible part of the universe, but the also part that we cannot see. And then we have ignored that part. And then suddenly what happens is that in our world, in our perception, time appears, but it's relative to the part that we cannot see. So time appears to flow forward because there's another part of the whole microscopic world where it sort of appears to go the other way. The other way. And this is an, an emergence of time that actually comes from a quantum mechanical description. So microscopically, I really believe that time doesn't really exist. So it's something that we have invented or at least used in our daily experience. But if you ask me, does the real microscopic universe know what time is? Probably not. So eventually, I think, can we really ask the, answer the question what time is? I think that's a difficult one. I mean, even the beginning of time, like the Big Bang, I think is a, a question that is going to be, uh, well, central to all of understanding what time is. But it's going to be uh, a long time before we have answered uh, those questions. Thank you. Hugh, are, are you going to tell us about the block universe? Um, no, not, not in so many words, um, James, but I, I, I thought it might be helpful if I gave a bit of a framing for the debate in two ways. One is to, to point out that the, the issue we're talking about as to the relationship between time and what physics tells us about the world is a very old issue, which has been there in, in physics and also in philosophy, at least since the 17th century, arguably at least since the ancient Greeks. And it's really the question as to how, how much of our naive view of what's there in the world is really part of the physical story and how much in some sense comes from us. Uh, and this was much debated in particular in the 17th century, which was the period when 
physics sort of split off from philosophy and became a separate discipline. And you find uh, at that period some of the great figures responsible for, the, uh, for modern physics, figures like Galileo, writing about this very question and the kinds of cases that they are writing about, and it's, it's not to do with time, it's to do with things like colors and smells and taste, things of that kind. So the question that they're considering is whether those things are real properties of things in the world or whether in some sense they come from us. And Galileo decides that they come from us. He says that, that color and, and smell has its residence solely in the sensitive body. That's what he says. And what he means is that these are things that come from us. They're not part of the physical world. They shouldn't be part of physics. So that's the question. Where do we locate these features of time? Now, what features of time are we talking about? I think it's very helpful to distinguish three different ingredients in our sort of intuitive idea of time because they're, they're not the same and, and unless we pull them apart, we're liable to get confused. The one ingredient is the idea that there's something special about the present moment. This time is now. You might even think, well, the past doesn't exist, that's over, it's gone. The future doesn't exist yet. Perhaps the present moment is all that exists. So this idea that there's something special about the present moment, that's one part of this intuitive package. Another part of the intuitive package is the idea that there's somehow time sort of flows or moves or something like that, and that's what people refer to as the idea of the, the, the passage of time. But it's different from the first thing, because you could have a picture in which uh, there was something flowy or movie or something like that going on without picking out any one moment as the special moment. And the third thing is the idea that th this, this whole thing ha has a sort of privileged direction to it. So there's some deep distinction between the past and the future. And Eric was talking about pictures in physics in which that's not the case. But again, that's a, that's a separate question because you could, have, you could have the view that there is something special about the difference between the past and the future without thinking that the, the flow of time makes any sense and certainly without thinking that the present moment is in some sense objectively special. Physicists haven't yet got the answer to that question sorted out. For things like colors and smells, they sorted it out in the 17th century. Three or four centuries later, we're still working on it in the case of time. Thanks. Thank you. It's a very helpful uh, point you made about the, the, the idea of the uh, appearance and reality. And I think the pre-Socratics, De Democritus says this, that the smell or the taste of things doesn't inhere in them. It's our response to them. So, Alison, do you want to pick up on any of that? Yeah, I'm going to say some things that are broadly in line with the, uh, the kind of things Hugh's just been saying. So, there's a lot about our physics which is currently unsettled. So, there's a lot of speculations about how we're going to come up with a, a final theory, particularly one that can put together what we're learning about space-time from general relativity and what's happening at the quantum mechanical level. Nevertheless, when it comes to talking about people at the kind of energy and length scales and, and what's going on at the kind of environments that we inhabit, we know pretty much how that story looks. Um, and in the kind of physics we're using in this setting, there doesn't seem to be a lot of the parts of the intuitive package of time that he was just talking about. So these kinds of physics, they don't indicate a special moment that's present, they don't discuss the flow of time, and they don't have an intrinsic direction to time itself. Now, one could take that as a reason to think that the science is incomplete or missing something fundamental. But I guess my view is part of a trend recently to think that's not the right way of reading the situation. 
it would be a big surprise if our direct experience of the world could deliver what things are actually like at the fundamental level. And so actually what we should expect is there to be quite a complicated story of how it is that for creatures like us perceiving time, we end up perceiving it in the way that we do, even if it might look quite different at the fundamental level. So here I see a big role for physics as well as psychology in explaining how we are going to think of something time as something special having these features. James mentioned the block universe. I think it might be worth having that on the table. So according to the picture of science that works by and large uh, for us, we can think of events in the past and future as just as real as the events now. We can sort of line them up uh, in these kind of spatial layers with time as one dimension and space as the other three dimensions. And all parts of the block are equally as real as each other. No moment is privileged as what is objectively now. Time is, in a sense, a little bit like space, in that just as you can refer to here and you mean wherever you mean, we're from where you're standing, and I can say here and I mean something different, but we're not, as it were, having a deep disagreement. Similarly, there aren't special moments of time. Uh, if I say now, it just means the moment where I'm speaking. You can say now two minutes later, and you'll just mean a different moment. Um, so the, the puzzle for me is how we can explain how even though space is like time in that way, we nevertheless do think of time as having these very special features like passage that space lacks. Thank you very much. Um, Eric, a question for you is, um, you were saying that time might be emergent and that at the quantum mechanical level there'd be no time. Do you think the same thing about space? Is, is time on a par with space in your view or are they very different? They are actually related. I mean, of course, they make, there's a difference. Indeed, the way we experience space and time is very different. But we have also our position in space as well, and where we can only look outwards in one direction. We might think that space looks the same somewhere else, but we are here, the same as we are now in this time. And so there's some way in which location in space and time have a, a similar role. But the direction which we have the experience in time is very different from from space. But both actually are emergent. And both have to appear at the same time because, I mean, clearly in, in physics, space and time through the theory of general relativity are connected so closely that we cannot talk about understanding well, time without also understanding space. Can, can, I, can I ask uh, Eric a question? You can. Uh, about this idea that, that, that time is emergent. The question I have for Eric is how that can work where what you're starting with is from quantum mechanics. Because my, my crude philosopher's understanding of quantum mechanics is that like many other theories in physics, it works like this. There's, a, there's something which specifies the condition or state of um, a system at one time, and then there's a rule that tells you how something that has that state evolves and turns into something different at later times. But if you haven't got any time in the beginning, then presumably you can't have a rule which relies on time for its very nature. So you can't have a rule which tells, tells you how the system changes over time if you haven't yet got any time because it's supposed to emerge at the end, not be something that you put in at the beginning. So Eric, I'm, I'm curious. I, I know that your approach must have a, 
uh, a way of getting around this issue, but uh, I'm wondering if you could explain to us what it is. Yeah, so I actually meant it a little bit in, in my presentation, but let me repeat it. Uh, so if I think about quantum mechanics, you say correctly that there we have a state that sort of summarizes everything we know about a certain moment, and then we need this well, way of evolving it forward which we usually do by some equation, the Schrodinger equation. But that needs uh, knowledge about time already, because But if I now say the following, I have a state without the time, then nothing seems to be evolving. But now someone tells me, now well you don't shouldn't be looking at the entire state, but only at a small subsystem. Well, there are, there are relations between the two parts where you then can start talking about the time of one part relative to the other. So then actually one side flowing forward while the other sort of flows backwards. And this is just because of the way I've separated the system into a subsystem and its other part. It's like a seesaw kind of thing where one thing goes this way, the other way. But the, the, the picture might still be the other way around if you look at it from some other perspective. So time then becomes a relative property of the state, but it only appears because I've looked at the subsystem of the entire state. Okay, okay thank you. I'm interested in how you know, when, you're, when you've just got mathematics and physics, how do you know that something is time? What tells you that you've got time? I mean, uh, normally we would say, well, if it was, if it was uh, relativity theory, you know, I've got this uh, different signature for, for time to space, and, and time and space are kind of distinguished in any, in any way of looking at space-time. But in, in your picture, you're saying, oh, now time emerges. But what is, okay. what, 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 how do you know that you've got time in your equations? That's okay. what I'm asking. Really. Yeah. I, I think this idea of causality or cause and effect is the really the, the defining property for me, is that there's an order to things. So time is ordered in a way where we know events that happen before another event. And even though time cannot be absolute in the sense that different observers experience different times, it's still the order of things that should be the same. And so it's when I have a system where I can start indeed building this description where I have one state from which I can calculate the next one and so on, that behaves like time. So any physics, any set of equations that give me this kind of model where I say if I know this state at one moment, whatever parameter that's parameterizing it, and then I start evolving it forward, that looks like time. If the rules obey the, the things like causality, cause and effect. So for me, cause and effect is sort of what defines time. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. I mean, I was wondering if one way of putting it might be that it's insofar as you think the direction of time is part of what it is to be time, time is therefore emergent. Can you still have something there which doesn't have a direction, which is present in the before you get the emergence? 
Well, that would be the space kind of direction you're talking about. So there is some way in space has not one direction, but there are many choices you can make, and you can even debate whether how many dimensions are we living in and how many independent directions there are. But in that sense, space behaves very differently because we don't have this direct sort of causal relation. Um, I mean, there are even theorists that start thinking about whether there may be two times. And this is where I, I find things become a little out of hand because then we don't have the very clear distinction between order of things because then we have to order them in, in many more ways. Okay. But I, so I, I don't want to go there. For me, time is really one unique direction that sort of defines causality uh, and cause and effect. Okay, I, I, I there are some things that, that I, I'd, I'd like to push back a bit on there, if I may. But, but before we do that, I think it's worth clarifying this question as to whether there's anything in this picture that deserves to be called time. I mean, you know, you hear a lot of people saying that, that, that um, physics has shown us that time is unreal. And then there are other people who will say that, that physics has shown us that time is just not what we thought it was. And I think it's helpful to get some clarity about what kind of question that is. And again, you can use the, the example of water. I mean, at, at one time, um, people used to think the water was something sort of fundamental. It was one of the fundamental elements that composed reality. Now that meant that when, um, in the 19th century, when, when people discovered that, that water was a, was a chemical compound, when they had the theory to make sense of that idea, you can imagine someone saying, oh, that's, now we've discovered that there's no such thing as water because water is supposed to be a, a fundamental element and there's no fundamental element. Um, the, the stuff we drink is not a fundamental element. Now, I think it's clear that that's not a very interesting dispute. What was true in the 19th century at that point was that people had a choice to make. They could go on calling this water and say that it didn't have all the features that they'd previously thought that water had, or they could, uh, they could have done the other thing and chosen some other name, and, and, and then they would describe their discovery as being the discovery that there's no such thing as water. But at the base, uh, it, 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 in the middle of it, there's, there's just this terminological choice. And I think the same thing is true in time. So the, the interesting question is, to what extent can we find in physics something which has some of the properties that we always took time to have? Once we've asked an, uh, answered that question, then we, we can, if, if we want to, we can then ask the terminological question. Well, do we want to call this time? Or do we want to say that there's, there's no such thing as time? But, but th that's not a very interesting question. No, I, I I agree with that. I mean, I mean, uh, I also th work about on, on emergent gravity, and then people uh, translate what I'm saying as that there's that gravity doesn't exist. Well, that's not what I say. It's simply that we don't need to assume its existence a priori, but then we can derive something that behaves like it. And the same, actually, I think s should be possible with time. Is that we start from a formulation formulation where we don't need to put it in and assume it right from the beginning, but then we can derive a property that behaves like time and that for our experience would be time and then we can give that name to it and that's fine but it simply means that we don't need to sort of think about it from the beginning we can derive it and this is what emergence is is that you start from a formulation where for instance the molecules that make up, up water they have to be in a certain state before it's water but so we have a formulation of what water was before it became water and that's the same with, with, with time. I think there's some formulation of physics 
where we have it without knowing what time is yet, but then eventually we can make something that becomes time. Okay. No, I'm fully on board with that, but I, what, what I would now like to do, if James will allow me to, is to, is to push, push back on the other bit, the bit about cause and effect. And uh, Alison's smiling because she yeah. knows what I'm, I'm she and knows I agree, about. So. <laughs> she knows what I'm, I'm going to say at this point. Um, so, as you know, Eric, there, there are, there, 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 there have been some proposed models of the universe in which there are regions in the universe in which the thermodynamic hour of time points in the other direction. One, one example of this: 20 years ago, what people thought would happen would be that the expansion of the universe would slow down uh, un under gravity, so the the galaxies would, would would be sort of be continually receding from each other, not quite so fast, and, and then it was thought to be theoretically possible that it would reverse, and eventually all these these galaxies would collapse together again. So just as we have a, a, a big bang in the past, we'd, we'd have in the future a, a sort of corresponding thing in the other direction, which pe some people talked about as as the big crunch when all the matter came together again. Now we we now think that that's not going to happen, but just for the sake of this argument, let's think about that model. In that model, some people thought that the tendency of things to get mis more disordered, which is the, um, the, the second law of thermodynamics, would reverse. And so that any intelligent creatures who lived in that half of the universe would think of the future as lying in the direction that we think of as the past. And, then, and, and so similarly, their, their sense of, of which way causation went would, would point in the opposite direction. So in that case, if, if, if you want to allow for the possibility of that model, it can't, it can't be the arrow of causation, <laughs> which gives a fundamental direction so to time. I, in, in my first minutes, I already emphasized that, that the idea that the direction of time is related to the increase of entropy, I think is false. I know that Stephen Hawking actually had this uh, idea, but the when the world starts, the universe starts contracting again, and then we can look at our watches and they start working, uh, w going backwards. That I think is, is uh, not not uh, well not meaningful. But actually, I wrote a model. I actually have a paper on a model where indeed there's a part of the universe where time flows backwards. You said about the expansion of the universe. That means there's a horizon. And there's another side of the horizon. And that's exactly where, if you think about how time goes, it goes on this way, it goes forward. On the other side, it goes backward. So there's a model of the universe where on this side, we seem to be flowing forward, but on the other side, it's flowing backwards. And that's precisely the, the thing that I mentioned earlier, is that we have two systems that are connected to each other, where the time on one is actually related to the time on the other one. Because together, nothing happens. So it's only the relative direction that's actually giving us time. And so it's true that when something moves forward in time, there should be another part in our dis which we cannot see and which we don't observe, where time seems to be going the other way. And that's fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no, I, 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 I agree. If, if you're prepared to make that move and, and, and think of the direction of time as being non-universal, then you can deal with it that way. Yeah. So I I in physics in the 20th century, I think it seems like two things really important happened in relation to time. One was the sort of spatialization of time in relativity theory, where time starts to look a bit like space. It's treated as just another dimension in various ways. But the other thing is where we start to take the, ob the universe itself as an object of study and 
what we think about time is all tied up with what we think about the universe and the expanding universe and the early universe and the Big Bang and so on. Now, going back to the pre-Socratics, Leucippus had an argument that space must be infinite because you could just go to the edge and either there'd be a, a boundary, in which case there must be something beyond the boundary, or there'd be no boundary, but either way, you know, you could throw a spear from the edge of space and it must go somewhere so space couldn't have an end. Um, when we talk about time, I think we tend to sort of think that way. We think about the Big Bang and people say, oh, that was when time itself began or something. And you think, what? That doesn't make any sense. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about earlier moments. There must always have been some possible early moment. So how does your way of thinking you know, enlighten us in respect of of how we think about time and cosmology and, and the universe as a whole? Well, first of all, this argument about that we can always extend space uh, also assumes that space is an absolute notion. I don't mean in terms of its corners, but really that, that it exists as a notion. I think space and time both are approximations that we make to our reality from our perspective. So I think that uh, when we ca start calculating backwards, our approximation of what is really the world looks like may break down. It doesn't break down at one moment that was supposed to be the Big Bang. I believe in this idea of emergence, which is a very more subtle uh, phenomena where uh, a concept that first doesn't really exist yet starts to make more sense approximately and making better approximation to what is our current description. So I think our laws of physics break down somewhere when we start extrapolating, but it doesn't mean that time has to begin. I think the I believe that indeed there is some eternal state whatever eternal means, because that already implies some idea of time, but then from that state you have to then derive what our concept of time uh, is. So there's some way that our concept of time may not be the absolute time that really well has to continue all the way down. It's really something that's locally describing our experience of our universe. So, go on, Alison. Yeah. I mean, can I come back to something a, a little bit earlier you said? I mean, so I'm very on board with the idea of emergence and the how things appear at a higher level isn't straightforwardly coming out of the lower level stuff. There might be a complicated story. But do you think that when it comes to, say, eventually accounting for our experience of time, where the fundamental physics goes at the moment makes a huge difference? Are you skeptical of telling that kind of story that yes, I'm talking I, about? Yes, I am very skeptical of that. Because I think it assumes that we can describe everything that's going on on our universe in one picture of space-time. And I don't think that's possible. So what I said is that I think space and time can only appear when we ignore a very large part of the underlying microscopic description. And then our description is never perfect, and so we derive our notions of space-time only for a very small part of the entire system. Uh, and, and, yeah. and so then this idea of a Big Bang, I mean, so the story of the Big Bang, as I said, I have trouble with it. And for the same reason, as you said, I find it very illogical that we even talk about something that started at one moment, because that seems to be a contradiction in terms even. So it sounds to me like in some ways, 
you're sort of in sympathy with the elements of the block universe idea, at least insofar as that says that the fundamental state is not something in time, that there's something kind of eternal to realities. And then we don't need to ask questions like, when did the universe begin? Because it doesn't make any sense. Right? I, I think I agree. Uh, although, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the block universe actually is a very precise picture which I'm not fully agreeing with and this is namely the idea that indeed we can draw this line of space and, and time this way and then make this whole thing one whole because that is assuming that I can extrapolate our notion of space and time in all kinds of directions. But can we have cosmic time to do that? I think, I think we can pro probably understand a little bit of this block but as, when, as soon as you go further out the picture becomes more fuzzy and eventually you don't have the full block. I, let, let, let me say what I, uh, what I understand by the term block universe, which I think is a little bit different from what you just described. At the beginning, I, I said that there were three ingredients which go into what you might call the intuitive picture of time, the sort of naive picture of time that, that humans seem to have. One is the idea that the present moment is somehow objectively special. The other is this sense of, of passage or something like that. And the third is the idea that somehow there's some deep difference between the past and the future. For me, a block universe is any picture which rejects those three things. So any picture which, 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 which hasn't got a special present moment, it hasn't got something like passage, and it hasn't got this deep difference between the past and the future. Now, it seems to me that your ah. view clearly qualifies as a block universe view in those terms. Because okay. It, uh, no, it in some All ways right. it goes beyond the block universe in, in making time itself even in the block universe sense, non-fundamental and emergent. Uh, and, but it, it still counts as a block okay, universe. Okay, I understand. I mean, so then, then in that sense, I think the emergence of time is sort of replacing this notion of the, the block universe, that there's no special... It's sort of going, yeah, g going beyond it and, and yeah. providing a kind of underpinning for the block, yeah. I mean, do we have the emergence of space as well? Yes. So space and time have to emerge together. I mean, there's no way we can have one without the other sort of on an so sort the, of equal footing. The view equal that, that there must be something special about the present is very popular. It never seems to go away. And whenever one, a, anyone says it, I always want to say to them, yeah, but you said that earlier. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there's this insistence the present moment is special, but, but they thought that about, they're going to think that about the next present moment that's coming. So, what you know, I think Alison's point really is a good one, that it's like thinking here is special. I mean, it's special to us, I hope, um, but it's not distinguished from any other place um, as, uh, as, being, as having a special kind of reality just because it's where we are. Well, I think this is, I don't know. I mean, our daily experience is like that. I mean, it's clear that we are sitting here now and this is sort of what defines this moment. And I'm not thinking about what I did yesterday so much. I mean, I'm really here now. I mean, I can, and I don't know what the future will bring. This kind of ways for our practical life very important. So I think we eventually have to have a theory that even explains this, but from a starting point maybe that doesn't need it. I mean, so I don't think we should deny that we have this experience but simply it doesn't mean that that's the fundamental way that we have to talk about physics. Well, I think we've got quite a lot of agreement amongst the panel. Um, thank our panel very much indeed for really stimulating discussion.
We hope you enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. So what do you think? Is time something that we perceive? Or do the laws of nature depend on it? Let us know by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our times. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.